All right, amen. Praise God. This morning, I, as I came in this morning, and even as I was preparing this past week, and I thought about the message this morning the Lord laid on my heart, and, I, and as I was directed there and just searching and, and preparing, I thought, you know, wh- it's almost like this sermon, where is the right place to preach this? Because really, the sermon this morning and the message this morning should have been preached first. In fact, maybe that's all that should have happened today, to be honest. And just to be sincere with where my thoughts and my heart is. And, and we are going to be approaching communion, so it, it's fitting. But maybe it's something we should have just listened to and then left and really struggled with for a while. Each of us. Me. You. Every one of you. Every one of us. It, it really does apply to us. And Jesus speaks to all of us through this. The, the title of my message, if, 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 if there could be one, would be called, How to Alter Your Ego. And you can, you can, it's a play on words a little. I won't reference that title much, but it's Alter to Change, but it's also the altar that we come to, but how to alter your ego, okay? And we're in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, please turn there. If you don't, please follow along, listen Take it to heart. Listen to the words of Jesus. He means what he says. He's serious about what he says. And um, he seriously wants me, you, and each of us to listen and to act. Amen? Matthew chapter 5, as many of you know, in Matthew chapter 5 begins the Sermon on the Mount. Some of us might be experts at that, or at least maybe we claim we're experts in the Sermon on the Mount. You might have read it dozens, hundreds of times in your lifetime. I don't know, but there's so much contained in chapter 5 through 7. And, and it, it's addressed to the disciples of Christ. Although, if you notice, and if you dig deeper, you will notice that the audience includes people who are just simply curious, as is always the case in Jesus' ministry. In fact, there might be some of you here this morning that are just simply curious. And I'm looking around, and I know most of you, but... Maybe you're here just because you're curious. Oh, what's going to happen? What's Pastor Bob going to say? What's, who's going to be there? Who's, maybe it's just curiosity. I, I, I don't know. That might be the case. In fact, in his audience, there were also in the audience, when Jesus was preaching and his, throughout his ministry, but especially even the Sermon on the Mount, on the outskirts and maybe even deep within, close in proximity to Jesus' voice, were the critics. There are those who are critical, not just curious, but they're critical. And they're, they're looking at every single word and looking for a way to trip Jesus up or to prove him wrong based on the law, namely the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, and the like. And they were trying to find that throughout his ministry. And then there were also, when he's speaking on that mount, on the hillside there on the mountainside, those are those who are cautious. Hmm, I don't know if I should believe this guy. And if he does, to what extent? And there's... And, and maybe that's where you are today with the words of Jesus. Maybe, maybe that's where you are. Maybe you've been a Christian and you're still that way. Well, you ask God to help you to wholly submit and dive in and be obedient because Jesus says that if you love me, you will prove it by obeying my commands. You'll do what I say. Amen? In verse 21 in our text, let's start reading there in verse 21. And we'll go down a ways. Please follow along. I'm reading in uh, the New American Standard, but your translation is fine. Just follow along. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, fool, idiot, moron. That's for effect, but that's what that means. Shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If therefore you are presenting your offering... It's a big word there, by the way, just so, so you don't run ahead. And as you're listening, for those of who are cautious or critical, or maybe you're serious, or maybe you're just curious, but that word if is there, and it's there for a reason, and it's important in verse 23. I'm not going to visit it again, but take note that it's there. It, it underlies a condition and a situation that you might be in. And he says, if therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. And that last portion we won't focus on as much, but the the first portion we'll, we'll look at today, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to people long ago by the ancients, right? Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother... Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be danger in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering a gift, I'm reading it again because we need to hear it. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. That's the NIV. You have heard it said. But I say to you, is what Jesus says. And here Jesus expresses his authority as the Lord of the Scriptures, the Word itself. And six times, six times in chapter 5, Jesus confronts the wrong interpretation of the scribes and rabbis in their use of Scripture as he addresses the critical issues that are ethical, right? An ethical issue of murder, adultery, divorce, pledges, revenge, and the treatment of, mem- of enemies. That's what he does in, right after in succession in this chapter. It has been said. By whom? By the teachers, by the scribes, by those of old who were learned and were being able to teach you and make you learned. Versus, it stands written, literally is what it says in Greek. It is written, and he refers to the authority of Scripture. It has been said, but I say it is written. It's a smack in the face. Do you realize what you're saying? You guys are wrong. You've had it all wrong. This is not the right way to look at this Scripture and this law, that if you murder somebody, it's a sin and and there's judgment that comes. The law did say, the law said that if you take another's life, in our law, says that as well, right? Yours is to be taken in return. In Leviticus chapter 24, 17, you will find that, just so you don't think I'm making that up, and in other places in the Old Testament as well. 
And this is, this is that legal or that external balance, if you will, right? That's going on here. But Jesus says something. He says that anything that leads to killing murder is wrong. And I'll say murder. Murder is wrong. It is not only the act that is to be avoided, but it's that attitude of ill will. That's what he's talking about here. To the Pharisees and to the scribes, okay, the leaders who knew it all and were teaching others, worship was, it was the external ceremony. And they wanted everyone to know it, that they were good at it, that they could show up and they could show up in the proper way, dressed to the nines. They could say the words without even tripping up over a syllable or a punctuation or the present or past tense in their speech and not mixing in that, whatever it is. It was, it was all about the external ceremony. The ceremony. But I never killed anyone. I never murdered anyone, you might say or they might say. And Jesus says, yeah, sin is internal. That's where it all starts. We bring inflated egos to worship. Not not me, but you're guilty already. (laughs) We bring inflated egos to worship. I'm not as bad as them. Over there. And I'm definitely not as bad as them up here. That's what we do. You might not actually think you do that, but if you're honest and you let the Holy Spirit go right here, we do that every time we come together on some level. You know, Christians are some of the best people at looking across to the other aisle or the chair next to you and finding something wrong with somebody around you. shouldn't be that way. shouldn't be that way. And by the way, I find it so interesting, I have to make a comment on this, for those of you who were in our Job study, how there is an overlap with this, this, these comments right here and what's going on with where we were in Job. I did not plan that, just so you know. Okay? It's incredible. So I think we should take to heart, especially if you were in our Bible study, what is being said here. And so, anger and hatred, Jesus says, and we know, anger and hatred, because anger leads to hatred when you let it rest and build up, right? And it is a sin. Hatred is a sin. And to be angry with one's brother brings one to judgment. Period. We can't run away from that. You cannot search the Scriptures and come back and say, well, not really. No, it does. To call one raka, stupid, or empty-headed, that's another word in the Greek, by the way, I think that word came up in Bible study today, may bring one before the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court. And to hold one in contempt, calling him a worthless fool or an outcast, right, places one in danger of hellfire. You're so off-base, you're so off-center that you're on the fringes. And if you believe that about somebody, you're, be careful, And here, anger takes on three forms. It's unjust, it's with contempt, and it's with wickedness. The disciple is to have the highest regard for his fellow man. 
to respect the sanctity of human life, and to meet differences by practicing love and forgiveness. That's what we're called to do. But wasn't Jesus angry at times? Yes, he was. But his anger was not inconsistent with what he was authoritatively saying in this case. And his anger was a righteous indignation. And by definition, it's different than what we're talking about here. And he had indignation. He was so disgusted with anger at the evil he saw playing out in people around him through various sins and injustices. It was not unjust. It was not with contempt, and it was not wicked anger. No way, shape, or form of that. Jesus teaches here, and this is why we have to listen, that anything that leads to murder or to killing is sin. And he calls his disciples to be free from anger. While, while one may say, and you might say, and I might say, well, I've, I've never killed anyone, i never murdered anybody. Jesus asks about the inner attitude of anger and hate, of destructive words and hostility. See, anger is the root of murder. And it is murderous in principle. Anger wounds others and also warps the spirits of the person who is so immersed in feeling and having those feelings of wrath or indignation that is wicked and with contempt. But we must resolve this anger. You've got to resolve it, brothers and sisters, in other ways than focusing on personalities with destructive attitudes towards them. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, what does he say? He says, if you are angry, don't sin. Don't sin. Don't the sun go down. Yes, but don't sin in your anger. Don't be angry and sin. That means if you're sinning when you're angry, there's contempt, there's wickedness, and it's off base. You know, anger can annul our adoration. It voids it. It makes it meaningless and worthless when we start to adore God and we use those words when we sang our worship to God today. But if there's anger, it makes it all void. The context of this passage has to do with anger. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. We must be watchful. I'm talking to me. I'm talking to you. Jesus is talking to every one of us. We must be watchful of our words or else wrath will decimate us and destroy others. When we bring anger to the altar, we cannot adore God. You can't do both. You can't bring both before. Both can't, if I could use the word, they cannot coexist. They cannot be together. You'll never be in harmony if those two things are in your life and you're worshiping God and angry with somebody. Not going to happen. We must be watchful. When we bring anger to the altar, what happens is what Isaiah said in chapter 1 and verse 15 when he began his words and God's, when, God, when God spoke to him and to the people of Israel. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers... I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. What does that mean? I mean, were they actually physically killing each other? No, but they were. But they were right here. I just have to think, and I just am reminded of Moses in the wilderness. How many 
of the people, after a while, wanted him gone. It's the attitude. It's sinful. They were rebellious as a result because of that anger, right? It's, it's an anger. They didn't follow through on it, but boy, if they could, they would, right? And then in 58, chapter 58 and verse 4, Isaiah the prophet says this. God says this through Isaiah. These are God's words to him, to his people. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. This is a picture, a word picture. They're not physically hitting each other, although I shamefully say this. I've been in church business meetings where there were physical altercations. God have mercy. It's wicked. The heart is so wrong and the ego is so inflated and it can't be let down. You cannot fast as you do today, God said, and expect your voice to be heard on high. And the psalmist says in Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I'm angry there, and if I got something against my brother, and I want them to be dead and gone, or I want them to be judged and the wrath of God fall on them, God's saying, what's your problem, man? Look in your heart. You need me to humble yourself. Lay your ego down. Look in your own heart. You've got to adjust your attitude, and I can help you with that. I can alter your ego. See, peacemaking is very personal. It's not, just, it's not institutional. It can't even be institutional unless it starts on a personal level. It's got to start at the personal level, individual level. The verb tenses change in this passage when you read it from you all have heard to a singular you. You have heard it said, you all have heard it said, but I, Jesus says, tell you, Denise. But you have all heard it said, but I tell you, Bob. That's what he's doing here. Very personal. And this message that Jesus has is not, if I could, you know, the alliterative thing, is not for all the masses around us. It's for me. Do you see it? It's for me. And Jesus deals with the seriousness of anger, right? In the context of temple worship. With an annoying brother, if I could use that word, by asking his followers to take the initiative in reconciliation. There are four steps in our text to resolve this kind of an anger issue where that there's sin in that heart against a brother. And it's really the outline. It's four words that you can leave with and memorize them. And I implore you, I ask you, I plead with you, that when we leave this morning and you go through this week, read these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 down, about this anger over and over again this week. I'm going to do it. I encourage you to do it as well. First, leave. Yep, leave. Memorize, leave. You've got something to give to God. Oh, but I got words in my mind that I'm so psyched up and I'm going to leave. Leave that altar. Don't even come to the altar, even if it's your closet in your home, whether it's in the temple. Leave. Don't even just drop it right there. Even when it's inconvenient, leave. Jesus doesn't say, ah, you know what? Leave when 
the service is over. Leave when you feel good. Leave when you've eaten a big meal and you're satisfied physically, you know, and you had a good tiramisu cake. Mm. No, leave. But I'm in the middle of, of, of worshiping and... Pr- leave, stop, leave. Leave that. We need to pause in our praise until we're at peace. Now, we, we are. We're, we're at peace with God because of what Jesus did, but, but what interferes with that peace is our relationship with other people, and they interfere with that as well. And we allow them, and then we, we're, we're, we're egged on, and we keep going, and then it builds up, and then there's... I wish they were just not even around. Just so sick of it. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty two. A lot of us know this scripture. It says that God is more impressed with our obedience than with what we may have to offer Him. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. David figured this out, and he knew this well. He figured this out perfectly in Psalm 51 and verse 16 and 17. He said, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. Does that mean God doesn't want our sacrifice? No, it doesn't mean that. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of a God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. The broken and contrite, but when when your ego is there, when it's inflated and there's pride and you won't make it right and you hold it against someone or someone holds it against you and you carry on and you don't just let it go, right? God's like, I despise that. God would rather have a broken life than a beautiful lamb. That's what he's saying. Does that make sense? That's what he would rather have. He would rather have a surrendered man or a woman than all kinds of boatload of money. He would rather have us leave and make peace than lift our hands in praise when we have something against someone and it is that contemptuous, wrathful attitude. Now, those are strong words. And it might feel like, well, I'm not sure I'm really there. That, that's like, that's like really far gone. Ooh, but we can cross that line so quickly. It does a delicate line where we allow it to linger. And before we know it, that hardness comes in and that anger intensifies. And that anger results and, and breeds into something that just can't be overcome by just leaving it alone. We've got to be careful. Friction in the family must be dealt with. The word brother is used four times in verses 22 to 24. And as sons and daughters of the Father, our Holy Father, He desires us to have holy harmony in His family. How I treat my brother or my sister is emblematic of my relationship to my Father. But I don't believe that. It doesn't matter. It's the truth. Make it, God, make it right when God reminds you. Look, you know, there's a, there's a, Jesus said if. When you go and if you're reminded, if it occurs to you, and if the Holy Spirit touches you and you realize, 
And you start, oh, wait a minute. I'm really bothered by, I'm agitated by X, Y, or Z because of X, Y, and Z. Or A, B, and C. Whatever it is. Stop. Leave. Make it right. Listen to the strong words from Amos. I, I don't mean to come across, these are God's words, and I, I just, just want to, as we start this year, we've we got to have right hearts, right? Peacemaking takes precedent over praising. Amos 5, 21-24 says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Here's the principle. Here's the principle that we've got to latch onto and have. Gifts that we give to God derive their value from the heart of the giver. It's amazing, isn't it? That I remember when I have something ag- when I remember when I have something against someone and it's easy to do that, right? I remember that. It's I I start to worship or I'm in a situation or I'm thinking or I'm praying that I remember that I have something against someone more than when I have done something to offend them. Isn't that true? We remember what someone did to us, but we forget what we've done to others. We're so concerned with the anger that we feel, or as we would call it with our egos, righteous indignation. That really isn't righteous indignation. But we really... If we really cared about this hard issue of anger, then we should be just as concerned when we cause someone else to feel it as well. Notice that it's not, when Jesus says, notice that it's not your anger that is addressed, but your offense is addressed. Isn't it? Initiate reconciliation, whether it's your fault or not. It could be a legitimate gripe, or maybe it's unfounded. Maybe it's not scripturally grounded. And if so, carry on. I don't know. Leave it to God. It doesn't really matter. If someone has a grudge against you, follow God's nudge and do what you can to make it right. Now listen, you can't make it right if you don't have knowledge. Because we're not mind readers and we're not heart readers. Only God is a mind and heart reader. There's no such thing as a Christian psychic. Okay? Period. Jesus elevates reconciliation with one's brother to a greater of greater importance than religious rites and feasts and festivals and pomp and circumstance and all the, the scheduling and programming that we have. And the ministry of reconciliation was ultimately, as you know, expressed by our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who while we were still enemies, He died for us. To reconcile us back to God and to one another. And he made us part of a family. And Paul talks about in Ephesians. And there were these walls between us. But he broke them down and he wants us to make it right. Formal worship is acceptable when I'm in right relationship with others. Leave. And then secondly, go. Go. Go, even when you don't want to initiate. First, go, he says. We're to leave the place of reverence and go find the place of reconciliation with the one that we've wronged. The verb tense suggests, if you, again, I, I'm just showing you this little, this little different. I'm, I'm, I'm following my notes here because I don't want to go off script here today. Honestly, I, I feel 
I don't want to miss this. Notice, again, that this, this verse suggests an intense effort. It's so easy to think that the other person should take the first step. Isn't it always like that? Why? Because we need to alter our ego. Our egos need altering. Go. And this means first in order of importance. The priority of peacemaking is to resolve everything right away. And as we'll see, whether you have been wronged or whether you're in the wrong, it's always right to go. Ideally, we should run into the person that we're in conflict with. Because if they're doing it right, they'll be coming to us. And we should come together. Because we're both allowing our altars to be eagled, uh, <laughs> to be changed and altered, our egos to be altered, and we're coming together for reconciliation. But even when they don't show, we are still required to go. In this passage, Jesus does not mention the responsibility of the other person to restore the relationship. He puts it squarely on you and on me. Why? Because our relationships test our righteousness. Let's personalize the priority of peacemaking by saying this phrase together. I'm going to say it with you. I'm going to say it once. And would you please repeat with me? If you don't want to, that's between you and God and whatever, and that's fine. I'm not forcing you, but listen to this. Let's say this. And let's make it a priority. Reconciliation is always my responsibility. Can we say that together? Reconciliation is always my responsibility. Some of you won't say that, and that's fine, because you're still curious about that statement, or maybe you're critical about that statement, or maybe you just are, you don't care. Work it out. You'll be able to say that, because that's what Jesus demands and expects. Now, having said that, doesn't mean that I'm a master of that. It's a reminder that that's what I need to do, and we should remind ourselves that reconciliation is always my responsibility. Here's why this is such a big deal to God. He cares about you and the person that you're in conflict with and wants to use you to lift the load of hatred. End of story. That's why it's so important. So go. And then thirdly, be. Be reconciled. Let that be who you are. Someone who's reconciled. Be. Even when you feel innocent, be reconciled. To your brother. First, leave it. Second, go. Third, be reconciled. The word reconcile means to change one's feelings towards another. And often, I mean, the, the greatest example of that is, is what Jesus did in reconciling us back to God. We were, his, we were enmity. We were his enemies. We were fighting God all the time. We were angry at him. We rebelled him. We said, you're, you're wrong, God. We don't even want anything to do with you. And we fought him tooth and nail. And then when we were reconciled, what happened? Oh, yeah. I'm wrong, God. You're right. My hatred towards you is completely wrong, and, 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 and it's, it's, it's inaccurate, and you're so loving, and thank you for forgiving me, and I have no reason to hate you, and thank you that Jesus died for me, and the list goes on and on, and there's a record, we're brought into right relationship because of what Jesus did. The only way to make things right is to admit that you've been wrong. I can't bring a thanksgiving offering to God if I'm not thankful for my brother in the kingdom of God. Right, Jeremy? Can't do it. 
If I'm at odds in my heart with my brother, then the gift I bring to God is polluted, it's impure, and it's annulled by my sinful attitude. How does that work? Before you look at the person next to you, look in your own heart. That's the last thing I'll say about be reconciled. Because that is so easy to do. It's always easy to look at someone else and find their fault. It's called the ego. And lastly, come. Even when it's an interruption, come. Then come and offer your gift. Leave Go, be, well, reconciled, but be that person of reconciliation. Let that, 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 that be who you are, right? And then come. Reconciliation is important enough to interrupt our worship of God because unresolved conflict has already interrupted our worship. A right relationship with God depends on our willingness to maintain a right relationship with one another. Now, I don't quote John MacArthur often, and there are a lot of other theologians, but I just want to share what he he said about this. He said, true worship is enhanced by better relationships. Worship may be improved by our staying away from church until we have made things right with those with whom we know a relationship is strained or broken. Now, I don't know if I totally agree with that, but to a degree I do, because if we keep coming and nothing changes, why bother? Right? It's all false. That's what he's getting at. But I want to add something to it. That's the end of his quote. But I want to add something to this. I would add that too many people stay away from church for way too long because of conflict. Come on, who likes it? No one. No one. And so we stay away or we, we, we slide around each other and we keep a thousand miles apart. And the challenge, right, is that we take care of that. And, and the missing of corporate worship should motivate us to be reconciled just as skipping communion because we're in conflict should compel us to make things right before we celebrate the Lord's Supper again. Does it all sound right? The purpose behind this is peace, not punishment. Not punishment, but peace. We should love worship so much that the very thought of having to unplug for a bit should propel us to make peace. Don't stay away. Come and offer the gift of yourself. Now, step one as we come to a close and approach communion, is unfortunately pretty easy and way too many have stopped here. I did step one. I'm good. No, you're not. You've just started, man. Barely. Anyone can leave. It's simple to leave because of conflict. The challenge is to complete steps two through four so that you can come back and worship once again in a way that is true, genuine, spiritual, godly, righteous worship of God. Have you ever noticed that sometimes we get angry and we remain bitter with people and actually forget what initially made us angry in the first place? (laughs) 
Oh, man. I'm sorry. I'm speaking to myself. So it hits home, right? Deal with conflict before it kills you. Have you had tension for 10 years? It won't get better on its own. Popping a pill isn't going to take it away. Taking muscle relaxers might, you know, loosen up your neck and your head muscles, but you're going to have tension still there. And all that stuff you're feeling on the outside is just a symptom of and a manifestation of what's happening here. Oftentimes, I remember talking to Uncle Pete. Uncle Pete, you're back. Where are you? Are you here? Oh, yeah, you're right there. I remember years ago, you probably remember this, but I know you've talked to others about this as well. Years ago, Uncle Pete was talking to me, and I was asking about his, all the maritime stuff, you know, and the merchant marine, and being out all, around the, all around the globe, this man has been on ships. Big ships, you know? Not your 22-foot, you know, striped bass fishing boat. We're talking, you know, hundreds, if almost not to 1,000-foot-long ships. Right, Uncle Pete? And he was telling me, without any specific, I don't think it's appropriate, but, you know, places he was, but when he would be going on a ship, and there was a lot of traffic, you know, in those, those roads, that are th- those routes that are in the ocean, right? And when you would go, there are certain rules by which you go, right? And, and when you're coming to one another, if you're in a certain place, you're supposed to give way and yield. But there were certain nations and groups and whatever, they would never yield, right? You were, and it was dangerous. They would never yield when these huge ships are coming at each other. He has stories. He'll tell you, look, don't play chicken at sea with brothers and sisters and ultimately with God regarding these matters. That ego of that captain of that ship is so great. My ship is bigger than yours. My load that I carry is more important than yours. Where I'm going with my important load with my big ship is better than the place you're going. And those people are more valuable than your people. I'm exaggerating, but that's you don't think we do that, but subconsciously and because of ego, that's what happens. And we start determining who's more important, what's more important, which sin matters, which one doesn't, what degree of anger it is. If it's anger, it's anger. If it's conflict, it's conflict. Don't play chicken at sea. So, we have communion in front of us. And like I said, it's almost awkward for me because... This message, these words of Jesus are like, maybe we should have done this all week and then after we were ready, whoever really took it to heart, we come to service and then we actually can sing and have communion. But there's nothing that stops us right now. That if we take this, and when I read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, that if you read those words, that you wouldn't leave this and go immediately and make it right. So you can come back and take it. Maybe it won't be today. That's that's fine. But start with step one if that's what you need. But there's no excuse for not doing it and coming back and participating. Not whole. So, get rid of it. That inflated, angry ego. Get rid of it so that you can let it go. Leave. Go. Go. Be and then come back. 
If you need a gluten-free serving, Abram is back there. Raise your hand. He'll bring you a gluten-free serving. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a minute after our brothers and sisters are served the gluten-free servings, portions. I could just close in prayer. I could say a few more things that are floating around in my head that are connected to my heart at this moment. But I'm not even going to pray. I'm just going to read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about communion. And when you're ready, and if, and no one knows your heart, only you do. And don't you look at anybody else's heart. When you're ready, you can partake. If you're not, don't take it. Wait till next time. Or wait until maybe it's a three-second thing you got to do, and then you can partake. Come back. You can come back, right? So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. In verse 28, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Because what follows is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. That if that's in your heart, don't bring it. Get it right first. Leave. Go. Be. Come back. Examine your heart. You can hold this. It's between you and God. As much as it's a corporate thing that we do. But when you're ready, you can partake. And I'm simply going to ask you as you go through the week to read these words of Jesus again at least once a day. So we can grow in our relationship with God and each other and walk with peace and live with peace in our hearts and with the Lord Jesus. Amen? So take some time. Service is is dismissed when you're ready, but it's going to be quiet. And if that's awkward for you, that's okay. It's actually good. And when you're ready, you can partake, and then you can feel free to leave, or maybe you've got to spend some time at the altar. Maybe there's something that you can't resolve. Maybe it's something, maybe it's something that happened to you, and there's no way to resolve it in the past, and you're holding on to it. But you've got to get reconciled with your heart and let your ego down because you're still bitter and angry about something that happened with somebody that's not even around. And God says, lay it down. Lay it down. Leave. Make it right in your heart with God and with others, and then come back. Amen?